these groups of people were convicted of their sins. They turned to Christ. They turned from their idols to Christ. And their lives are now changing. Peter says they're rejoicing with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. They have a joy that they didn't have before. They've tasted and seen that the Lord's good. They, they've tasted the goodness of the one true and living God as opposed to their dead idols. They've seen the emptiness of all those idolatrous practices and the, the drunkenness and things that will be talked about later in this letter. They've seen the emptiness of all that, all, their idol, all, all of their practices of idolatry. And now they're learning a better way, right? The way of Christ, the way of the new creation. But somewhere along this way, things in the Roman Empire turned against them, turned against these Christians. The communities that they grew up in, the families that they came from, they aren't accepting these folks anymore. There's turmoil in marriages because some of the spouses, particularly the women, they believed in Christ while the, while the husbands didn't, and now there's conflict. Some unbelieving masters were making life really difficult for the, un, for the believing slaves, the slaves that had come to faith in Christ. And even the state, even the Roman Empire, had begun to mistreat these Christians. And if that's not all, in the spiritual realm, you have Satan, who's animating all these persecutions. He's prowling about, Peter says, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Trying to devour the children of Jesus, the children of Christ. And these days are the last days, and they are the same days that we're living in, even right now, even though the situation is different. They're the same last days, the days between Christ's resurrection and his coming and his, his return. They're the days we're living in. And Peter told us that, that these last days, these are days of incredible privilege, yes, but they're days of persecution, days of difficulty. And so the question is, when Peter writes, picks up his pen to write, what does he want emblazoned in their minds, emblazoned on our minds, through these tough days, these last days? What does he want burned on the back of our own eyelids today as we endure as his people? As you go to class tomorrow, as you interact at your workplace, as you live right here in the church, as you go home to family, believers or unbelievers, uh, over Thanksgiving, what does he want emblazoned on our eyes? He wants us to remember, Peter says, that we are elect exiles, right? As you can see it on the screen there. That's the theme of the letter, that we are elect exiles. And he unpacks this theme in one way or another throughout these five chapters of the letter. Peter says we have to know that even though we're suffering, even though life is difficult in these last days, even though we might be ostracized by unbelieving family members, even though that's the case, we are God's chosen people. We have to know that. We are elect, the first part of that equation. We are his chosen people. And because we are... That means we're also exiles here on, on earth, on this old earth that we still live in, that we're still waiting on his return. We don't belong under this world system anymore, and that world system doesn't like us. We're exiles here, and Peter's going to unpack what that means to live as exiles in the, the last, really, two-thirds of the book. If you think about middle of chapter 2 on, he's unpacking that second half of, of the equation there, the, the exiles portion. 
And we're going to start on that part uh, after Christmas break. Um, but in the first one and a half chapters, Peter wants to hammer home who we are in Christ. You just kind of want a summary? That's what he's doing. First one and a half chapters, he's hammering out who we are in Christ. And he wants us to see it with eyes of faith. Even if the world says that we're nobodies, right? Even if the world comes to us and says we're just a poor group of narrow-minded, misguided, judgmental weirdos, right? I heard that on a podcast recently. <laughs> weirdos. Weirdos that need to be reprogrammed. Uh, that was the language he used. And that's what's, that's what's thrown at us here a lot, on, kind of on the daily here in the West. But Peter wants us to see what's really true about Christians, what's really true about you and I. He wants us to see who we really are by God's grace and to live like it. And in this opening chapter and a half, he gives us a few metaphors to work with. He gives us a few ways that he wants us to see ourselves. And so far... We've only really seen the first one, so we've seen that we're elect exiles, and that's our theme. But really, this first, this first, theme, since first, first theme, since verse 3, he's been focusing on is this metaphor that we're part of God's reborn family. In one way or another, that's what we've been talking about pretty much our entire time in 1 Peter. Okay? That we are part of God's reborn family. In verse 3, he frames up our conversion as a brand new birth. Right? We've been fathered by God himself. We've been born into this family. And since we're in the family, we have all kinds of benefits from being in God's family. You know, benefits like joy and hope now, even in our trials. We've got, we've got joy, hope that we didn't have before. And then massive benefits later. Benefits that are coming like resurrection and, and inheriting the new earth. Those are huge, huge benefits of being reborn into God's family. And we've seen that along with those benefits come responsibilities, too, for being in God's family. Now that I'm on the inside, I need to learn to act like one of God's children, says Peter. I've got to become holy like my father is holy, that's what he says, first chapter. I've got, to, I've got new siblings, too, new brothers and sisters in this family, and I've got to learn to love them. And last time we were together, Peter compared us to babies who ought to crave milk, the milk of God's word, so that we'll grow. So the point is he's really working this metaphor of being in God's family. Through the first chapter, and a, for really the first part of this chapter, and then on into chapter 2. But now in the verses that we're going to look at tonight, Peter's going to shift the metaphor away from the family to something else. He's going to shift to another metaphor, another way of thinking about our identity as God's chosen people, the elect people of God. And it's another identity that's going to help us to live faithfully in the last days. And it's the, the metaphor of a rebuilt temple. A rebuilt temple. That's the metaphor, and that's the identity that he wants us to embrace, and that's what he's going to unpack for us tonight. So let's just read this really quick. Chapter 2, picking it up in verse 4. As you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the metaphor here is of a rebuilt temple, and that's the identity that Peter is wanting us to embrace in these verses. He wants these suffering churches to see that even though the world rejects them, even though they are not honored at all by the people that are around them, even though many of them are poor, they belong to the oppressed of the society, Peter wants them to see that they are being built into something glorious. Something that will transcend into the new creation. Something that the Old Testament looked forward to with great anticipation. And it's God's final and most glorious temple. Peter wants his readers, and he wants us tonight here at Balmos, to understand and embrace that we are this rebuilt temple, we might say. Or as he says it here, this spiritual house. Now, as we're getting into this, you know, we're kind of coming out of that last paragraph last week about newborn infants and and craving the milk. And then hit verse 4, and it's just a complete shift in the metaphor. Right, And you might be feeling like, hey, wait a minute, where does this come from? This kind of comes out of left field. I don't understand his logic here. A lot of the commentators spill a lot of ink on that. They're like, they don't understand either. And it feels like kind of a, if you're learning stick shift, kind of the not-so-smooth transition, you know, from one gear to the next, the jolt. Um, But it helps to know, okay, that these ideas of being in God's family and being part of God's house or his temple are not that far apart. They're not that far apart in Scripture, in the theme of Scripture. We're going to look at that in a second. But even in English, okay, even in English, when I say the word house, right, there's some overlap. I could refer to a building or a family, right, when I say the word house. Does it make sense? Let's give you some examples. Come to my house after this. What am I saying? Come to the building I live in, right? (laughs) Kind of weird to say it that way, but that's kind of what we mean. Come to my house after this. Now, what if I say it like this? If you're in my house, we don't act like that. What does that mean? What does house mean in that context? Family, right, family. This is not not a trick question, okay? You You can answer It means if you're in my family, we don't do those things, right? So house, come to my house, or if you're in my house, we don't act like that. You know, it can mean both a building or a family. And sometimes those ideas merge, right? So like you say something like, if you live under my roof, you know, we're meaning, you know, at least it means like you're part of my family. You're you're using the house metaphor. You're using the building, live under my roof, is meaning like 
you're part of my family. So those, those metaphors mix, my point. All right, back on track in Scripture. Get, get out of there. All right, those are just examples in our culture. But in the Bible, when it comes to the story of Scripture, the connections are much, much more profound, okay? Presence of sort of God's house, God's temple, and his family being together. You can think of it like this. God's presence, temple, God's presence and his people belong together. Make sense? God's presence in the temple and his people, they belong together. Okay, we might say it that way. Now, this is all introduction, so I'm just calling it, obviously, the rebuilt temple. We'll come back to that. But let me give you some background here to set up our passage, just a few minutes. Let me set up our passage tonight with some background from Scripture about this theme of God's presence and how his people belong in that presence. And it's going to set up where we're going tonight. Because a lot of times, a lot of questions happen with this, with this theme of the temple. What does it mean that we're a building? The church is also... This, this structure of God called the temple. So let me set this up for you, and then we'll jump into our passage tonight. All right, a little background on God's presence. Since the very beginning, okay, God's presence and his people go together. God intended to live among us. All the way back, Genesis 1 and 2. He made us, and then he gave us his sacred garden. The garden that he cultivated, God cultivated it, Gave it to us as a cultivated garden. That's the Garden of Eden. Later on, it's important to know that the designs of the tabernacle and the temple would be based on this garden. Tracking with me? When they built the tent, the tabernacle, and then later built the temple... The architecture, the designs, those things were evocative of the Garden of Eden. That's because God's presence was in the Garden in a unique way. He walked with our first parents in the Garden. He communed with them. But when you take a close look at that story, again, just skimming the surface here, there's a lot more we could say about this. When you, when you look at the, at the text in Genesis 1 and 2, it appears that his desire for his garden, his sacred temple, was two things, really. He wanted it to remain a sacred space and also to grow. Okay? Remain the sacred space, remain the sacred temple where there's no unclean thing, and then to grow, for that temple to grow. So let's think about each of those. Adam was tasked with guarding and keeping that garden. It was a task that would be later given to the priests to guard, to keep and guard the temple. Same verbs. Adam needed to work this garden, yes, but he, but he also needed to keep it free from the unclean or from any creature that might tempt them away from fidelity to God. Can you think of any? There's one that enters in Genesis 3. But it's also clear that the garden... This sacred space wasn't supposed to stay small. The Lord wanted it to grow. He told the first humans that they were to take dominion of the entire earth. 
that they were to cultivate the entire thing and to extend, the implication is that they would extend the borders of that garden. They would need to multiply their children to help this process. Gradually, as they and their children took dominion of the planet, they would extend the borders of that garden until the whole earth would be cultivated. It would be like a sacred garden, a sacred temple. It was the Lord's goal that through his people, or through his family, we could say, Adam and Eve and their offspring, that they would fill the earth with his image and with his glory. Or we could say it like this, it was his goal that the entire universe, the entire cosmos, become his temple. Like it was in the Garden of Eden. But we know that, that Adam and Eve eventually failed in this role, but that doesn't mean that God wasn't finished with, or that doesn't mean that God was finished with the project. They were kicked out of the garden for now, and they were destined for death. But God had a plan to restore His people, to give them life again, and to see them restored in a new creation. He had a purpose to live with them again and dwell with them again, like He did in the garden. And throughout the whole Old Testament, you see little echoes of this goal, you might say, this sort of cosmic goal. I'll give you a couple of them. I don't have them on the screen here, but Numbers 14.21. Numbers 14.21 says, All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Psalm 72.19 says something similar. Habakkuk 2.14. Throughout the Old Testament, you have these glimpses that God's desire is to fill the earth with His glory as it was intended at creation. Numbers 14.21, Psalm 72.19, Habakkuk 2.14. But this goal, this restoration project, was to happen incrementally. And first it looked like God restoring and walking with individuals who trusted in Him. Individuals like Enoch. Remember? Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him, right? Like it, meaning, he, was, he had an intimate relationship with God. God had restored the relationship. He lived in God's presence. He walked with God outside the garden, which is a staggering thing. Generations later, Noah is also described with the same terminology. He walked with God. Years later, he appeared to Abraham, and he made promises to be with Abraham and to be with Abraham's family. And he sent Abraham on a journey to a new land, a good land, a land evocative of Eden, where God would dwell with Abraham's family. And once Abraham's family grew into that nation, into, a new, into the nation of Israel, God brought them out of Egypt, and, ha- and, and he had them make a, a mobile tent, really, you know, a tabernacle, so that he could again dwell among them. That's the, the purpose of the tabernacle. He could be with his people. The tabernacle's design resembled the original garden. And the Lord appointed priests to guard and to keep that tabernacle, similar to Adam's role in the garden, And once that tabernacle was constructed, God filled it with his glorious presence. 
If you would, turn with me to Exodus 40.34. I was going to put these on the screen for you tonight, but ran out of time with PowerPoint. So, we're going to, we're going to play Bible drills here. It's going to feel like I'm dragging you through this, but trust me, we're headed somewhere, okay? Just want you, I want you to hear some of these parallels. Exodus 40, starting in verse 33, it's the end of the paragraph. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work, meaning the construction of the tabernacle. Then, 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled, not the earth, but the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from where the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The point is God filled the house, God filled the tabernacle with his glorious presence as a sign that he had returned to dwell with his people. Like he was originally, or not like, similar to how he dwelled with them in the garden. So then fast forward, many years later, once Israel was settled in that promised land, the land promised to Abraham and his descendants, once they were settled there, it was time to build a permanent residence to replace the mobile tent, right? So the tent's mobile, it can move around. Now it's time to build a permanent dwelling, a building that was stationary and would be in Jerusalem. And it was also designed with the imagery to evoke the Garden of Eden. And like the tabernacle, once it was constructed, God filled it with his glorious presence as well. So look over in 1 Kings chapter 8. When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So again, same thing there that happened in the tabernacle. So Israel is God's family. They took up the mandate given to Adam. And now, with God in their midst, in Jerusalem, they were to live obediently. And if they did, God would exalt them among the nations, and the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. But like Adam before, time and time again, they failed. They worshipped false gods instead of the true God. And the Gentiles, the nations, stayed in darkness. And eventually things got so bad that God actually left the temple. He actually left it. He abandoned his house because he said he was going to destroy it. Ezekiel eleven twenty three 23 there talks about God's glory departing from the temple. It's kind of the opposite direction. We won't turn there for the sake of time since I just burned up like two minutes staring blankly at a page. All right. Eventually, the temple was destroyed. Okay? God's family, Israel, was sent into exile like Adam was before. 
But even though Israel failed, God was still committed to his purposes, to dwelling with his people forever. While they were in exile, he promised to raise up another king, a Messiah, who would restore the people and rebuild the temple, like Solomon did before. But this temple would be far greater. It would be far more glorious than the first temple. The prophets gave hints that even the outsiders, people that were not Israelites, people like Gentiles, would be able to enter this new temple, which was different. It would reach the nations. Ezekiel pictures this new temple as having a river flowing out of it, bringing life to the deadness all around it, sort of metaphorical of the nations all around it. Ezekiel 47, if I have this on there. There are even hints that the Messiah himself, the king himself, would be its foundation. Would be its cornerstone. Psalm 118. We're going to see a a number of those in our text tonight. And all of this was predicted during Israel's exile or, or shortly after the exile. But eventually a foreign king named Cyrus let the Jews go back to their land. So they had been exiled. Now he lets them go back to their land. And he even made provisions for a temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And they did that. But here's the catch. You know what didn't happen in that rebuilding of the temple? The glory. The glory of God did not return to the rebuilt temple. God never returned to the temple. The glory of God never came back like it did at the tabernacle or the temple of old. Now, why is that? Well, Because this new temple would be different than the, the original temple. The Messiah, the king himself, would be its cornerstone. Well, how is that? How does a human become the temple? Well, because this king is also Yahweh incarnate. Meaning, he is God with us, Emmanuel. Temple signals presence, God's presence. And this king, this Messiah, would bring God's presence to his people fully and completely. And so, when you come to the New Testament, John says that Jesus tabernacled among us. John 1.4, or John 1.14, he tabernacled among us. That's the verb that's used there, meaning he dwelt. Your translation probably say he dwelt among us, but it's, it's the, if you translate it literally, it's the ta- he tabernacled among us. It's a connection with Jesus to the tabernacle. And it says, he dwelt among us, and we saw his what? Glory. Evocative of the glory that filled the tabernacle and temple. Jesus embodied God's presence on earth. And that means the tabernacle and temple pointed to him. And that's why Jesus said he was the true temple. He told the Jewish leaders that they would destroy the temple, but he would raise it up in three days. John chapter 2, verse 19. They thought he was talking about the actual temple building, but John says he was talking about himself, his own body. And then later on, toward the end of his ministry, When he was actually teaching in the temple, he quoted Psalm 118, and he claimed that he was the cornerstone of that new temple. 
Matthew 21, 42. And he even claimed that his followers, his own followers, would receive his spirit too, and that these rivers of water would flow from them, from their hearts. The rivers of water. The rivers that Ezekiel predicted of the new temple would flow from not a building, but from the people of God. Rivers of living water. John 7, 38. So we could say Jesus claimed his followers would even become part of this temple with that, with that illusion. And this final temple then would be made of his restored people, not of actual stones. But how would this final temple be created? How would it be created? Well, it would be created through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. As the temple's cornerstone, he died to restore us to God, to cleanse this final temple, to open the way into the very Holy of Holies. We might think of the ripping of the, of the veil of the temple at his death. And then he was raised, and he eventually ascended to heaven. And in Acts chapter 2, he poured out the Spirit on the disciples. So the glorious presence of God, the glory that had departed from the temple in Ezekiel, had finally returned to the temple. But it didn't come to the building. It came to the people. The followers of Messiah. He created it through his death, resurrection, and ascension, and the glory returned to the temple at Pentecost when the Spirit descended on the followers of Jesus. And if you were to read Acts carefully, you would see that that Luke presents Jesus not just as a new David, but also as a new Solomon who is busy building his temple. And he's busy building his temple as churches are planted. This means God's presence isn't limited to a physical temple in Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem, yes, but as the gospel spreads, so does the temple. Borders are extended. It spreads to Judea and Samaria after Jerusalem and then among the Gentiles. The temple walls are extending. Or to use an earlier metaphor, the borders of the garden are expanding. God's sacred presence is covering the earth slowly but surely as his church expands. As we get back to our text tonight, you can jump back over to 1 Peter. Peter himself knew these things. He heard Jesus' teaching in the temple. And he heard his teaching about the temple. And in the passage before us tonight, Peter wants to assure us that we really are this final temple. Even though we might not look very special in in the world's eyes, we are special in God's eyes. 
not only that we are this temple, but he also wants us to see why we've been brought into this new temple. What is the purpose? And so he's going to teach us about our mission as this new and final temple. So in the time we have left, we're going to ask four really quick questions about this temple and let Peter answer this for us. Sorry, I'm like way behind the game here on my PowerPoint. There we go. The last last point on that, if you're taking notes, is the new temple is built as the church expands. Give you a second before I zip past that one. Drink my water as you write. Got it? All right. So, four quick questions about this temple and Peter's answers. Okay? Number one, how do we become part of this temple? How do we get in, into the temple? What, how, how are we admitted and do, how do we become part of this new thing, this new end-time temple? Well, Peter tells us in verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men and then the sight of God chosen and precious. As you come to him, that's how you get there. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Peter gives the answer in verse 4. How, how, do, we, how do we become part of this temple? We become the temple by coming to Jesus. By coming to the living stone, he says. Now this language of coming to him is another way of talking about when we first believed in Jesus. We came to him in faith. And really, Peter's telling us the reason why we're part of the temple now. He says it's because, that's the way you could translate this, it's because we came to him in faith. By coming to the living stone, he turned us into living stones too, he's going to go on to say. And that means then, whenever you believe the gospel, whether you were 7 years old or 27 years old, whether you came to him at, you know, at night with your mom in your bed, she's praying with you, your conscience is torn up when you were a young child, or you came to him through a friend when you were older, you'd wrecked your life, whatever the case. However it happened, the moment you came to faith in Jesus is right there in that moment. He added you forever to his temple. You became part of this temple. When you came to him, as you came to him. But notice how he describes Jesus here. You came to him, he says, the living stone. That's kind of a weird description, right? Like, if, unless you, you know the background of what he's saying here. In Judaism at this time, the Messiah was often compared to a stone because of their interpretation of certain passages in the Old Testament. Peter himself is going to quote several of those pastors later in in our text tonight. Passages like Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, Isaiah 8. In these passages, the Davidic king is compared to a stone, and in particular to a stone of the temple, the most important one, the cornerstone. So that's important to know. But then you might also add another one on. You might remember the vision in Daniel chapter 2, right, of a giant statue. King Nebuchadnezzar, the statue in his dream, represented all the kingdoms of the earth. The statue got destroyed by what? A stone, a rock, 
Not made with human hands, it says. It's clearly a messianic king in that vision. So the stone imagery was associated with the Messiah and his kingdom, and particularly as a stone of the new temple. But he's described here not just as a stone, but as a living stone. What do we make of that? Well, Peter here is talking about Christ's resurrection. The messianic stone of the temple is a living stone, implying that the temple itself will be characterized by the very life of God. And it's important that it is, because Peter gives a subtle reminder here when he's describing Jesus that Jesus had to die first. This king, this stone, wasn't recognized by men as the glorious king he really was. He was, quote, rejected by men, says Peter. But the rejection of men, that doesn't show that someone's, whether someone's valuable or not, right? Like in this case, Jesus was valuable to God, it says. He was chosen and precious. So why does Peter say that here? Why does he tuck that in in describing Christ right now? Because he's reminding us that just as our king was rejected first, so we will be too. And we shouldn't let the world's rejection of us cause us to doubt if we really are part of this glorious temple or not. Make sense? The world rejected Christ too. So we're going to get there. We'll get more on that in just a second. He's going to blow that open. Right now it's sort of like a teaser as he's like headed, headed there in just a second. If we get back to our first question, how do we gain admission to this temple? How do we become part of it? It's by trusting Jesus. It's by coming to him in simple faith. That's the only way you get in, is by humbling yourself, owning your sin, and receiving what he has done for you on your behalf. You've got to come with empty hands. And that is faith. That's coming to Jesus, and that's glorious news. But it raises a second question here. And a question we've kind of discussed a little bit already in our introduction, but what kind of temple are we? Okay? What kind of temple are we? Well, we know, obviously, it's not like a, the physical tabernacle or temple of old. We're not literally turning into stones, you know, like something out of Narnia. That's, like that's, not, that's not what Peter's saying here. He's using a metaphor. But Peter's descriptions here are carefully chosen. And they're very helpful. They help us see the nature of this new temple, this temple that we've become by faith. So let's look at them. Initially, he compares us to living stones. And he uses the same phrase for us that he just used for Jesus. His point is that the new temple is alive. Okay? The new temple is alive. Now, we obviously haven't been resurrected yet. So it's not alive in that sense. Like, we're not physically resurrected yet. But we will be when Christ comes back. So, we will be resurrected. But we are spiritually alive. Christ has made us alive, like we've seen in 1 Peter already. But this new temple, then, is where real life is found. There's a spiritual vibrancy among us. There's a hopefulness here, because there's life now. And... There's life that's coming, and we're confident of that. So we're living stones in that sense. And because it's alive, Peter says, it's actively under construction. It's actively growing. 
is progressively growing, or as Peter says, we are being built. We're being built. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. It's actively under construction. Notice that the verb tense here is in the present tense. So meaning it's, it's ongoing and it's not done yet. Over the last few years, a couple of you guys, several, many actually, have come to Christ, and a few of you came to Christ right here at Timberlake. Guess what happened? The temple project got a little closer to completion. We added some living stones to the walls. But I think there's another way that this temple grows, or this temple is built. How so? Well, it's not just in breadth, you know, in numbers, like more people are coming, is that's, that's true, but it's also in depth. It's also as we mature and grow in Christ. Now, a hint here, how we know that, is later on in this letter, Peter's going to tell us to use our spiritual gifts over in chapter 4. And he'll call on us to be good stewards, keyword, good stewards of those gifts. And that language of steward is connected to the language of house. Okay? It's the same. It's a, there's a connection there. Like a household manager. So when he's saying to be good stewards of those gifts, he's talking about using those gifts for the upbuilding of God's temple. And if you were with us in our study of Ephesians, very similar. Paul does the same thing over in Ephesians. Talking about the gifts and connects that to the temple and the building of God's temple. What's the point here? Well, the point is that God's temple grows not just as we see people come to faith, but it also grows and expands as we serve each other and use our gifts. So think about that, and think about how that impacts how you think about the mission or missions, right? Do you realize that when you use your gifts to serve the church and build up the church, you're just as much a part of the temple-building mission and its expansion as you are when you're evangelizing. You're not pitting them against one another. They're, they're part of the same mission. Evangelism and edification. They're both temple building. They're both expansion. More people must... The, the temple must expand to more people, but it must expand down to more depth. And that's the imagery here. We're presently under construction in that way. The temple is being built. And finally, if we get back to our question, what kind of temple are we? Okay, question number two. He answers it again by calling us a spiritual house. He's essentially saying we're God's dwelling place. The dwelling place of God, where he lives, his home. And here when it says we're the spiritual house, that's what I'm saying, it's God's house. It's where God lives because it's, he's not saying we're like a non-physical house, even though that's true. He's saying we're a house that's characterized by the spirit of God himself. We're a spiritual house. We're a temple that possesses God's spirit. God dwells in the church. That's the idea. And that's a profound thought. Right? I know we kind of talk about that, but just in light of what we talked about with the tabernacle and temple, think about this with me for a second. Do we want people to see God and the manifestation of his glory on earth today? Bring them to the church. 
bring them to the gathering of God's people. At Timberlake, we should expect people to encounter God in a unique way when we gather together. In our small groups, in our Thursday night Bible studies, in our fellowship meals at home, and in the corporate, corporate gathering, God is present. And He is demonstrating His Shekinah glory. You say, well, how's that? Right? Like right now? He is. He's doing it through our transformed lives. He's doing it through our praises as we have been renewed to sing to Him. In our joy, in our love for each other, the Spirit bears His fruit among us and radiates His glory. That's because the church is God's unique dwelling on earth. That's the kind of temple we are. We're God's dwelling. So those are some of Peter's answers to what this temple is. But that raises a third question, and, and it's the purpose question. What's the purpose of this temple, right? What's purpose? Peter says, we're built up as a temple for a purpose. To become a priesthood that offers acceptable sacrifices. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Why? To be a holy priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's the answer. There's the purpose. There's the mission of the temple. Now, this is a tough passage, so working on this pretty hard today. Okay, um, He shifts metaphors again. Uh, so he's talking about the temple, but now he shifts metaphors to the priesthood. He moves from calling us the temple to calling us a priesthood, meaning the restored temple is also a restored priesthood. He's mixing metaphors here. And he calls it a holy priesthood, meaning we aren't unholy like Israel's priests often were under the Old Covenant. Christ has made us holy. He's cleansed us. He's set us apart for usefulness to him. And here it's framed up as a restored priesthood. And by the way, the prophets predicted that would happen too. Um, but that's the goal of this temple building project, this restoration of the priesthood. But what is it that Peter envisions us doing as this priesthood? Why were we restored, he says? To offer up spiritual sacrifices. What's that? Well, he's saying, when he says spiritual sacrifices, he's talking about sacrifices carried out in the Spirit, or by the Spirit's power. That's, again, why he calls them spiritual here, just like he called us a spiritual house, meaning the Spirit of God is resident within us. Here, the spiritual sacrifice is a sacrifice that's animated by the Spirit of God. But what are these sacrifices? Peter doesn't tell us. He just moves on. Just, it's, it's his, that's not his point here. But I think we can make some intelligent observations. All right, It's clearly not the literal animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant. Okay, that's the old covenant. Uh, this is the new. So you can rule that one out. Christ has already come. He's already fulfilled that sacrificial system. So what are these sacrifices? Well, these sacrifices are any act of obedience that's carried out in faith. 
All right? Any act of obedience is carried out in faith. You're trusting Jesus, and you're trying to obey him. And in the rest of the letter, Peter's going to flesh out these kind of sacrifices. Things like doing good deeds among unbelievers, submitting to government, loving the church, submitting to your boss at work, even when they don't treat you very well, living for Christ in the home, pursuing unity in the church, not retaliating when you're wronged. I mean, it's just, he's going he's he's to spell out what it looks like. But the point here is not so much a command to go and do these sacrifices. That's implied. But the point here is to see that this kind of transformed living is why you were made part of the temple. It's why you've become a priest. So you can actually offer these kind of spiritual sacrifices. And you know what's super encouraging about all this? All those little acts of obedience are actually, Peter says, acceptable to God. Do you see that? Our goal is to offer these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. You don't have to worry if God's going to accept your obedience or not. He will. Your attempts to obey Him are deeply pleasing to him. You're not earning anything. You're not, you're not earning your status before him. But he is pleased by your obedience. He's thrilled. He's overjoyed when you exert effort to obey. Think about that. Like when you pray, when you offer a sacrifice of prayer, you know, when you pray to the Lord, he is so pleased. Like it brings him joy. That sacrifice is accepted by him. When you try to renew your mind, when you're trying to memorize scripture, you're bringing pleasure to his heart. When you fight the temptation to look at porn, he's overjoyed. When you love that friend who gets on your nerves, these are sweet-smelling sacrifices, sweet-smelling aromas to the Lord who saved you. He loves it. It's acceptable to him. But if you're a thinker, you might be wondering, how can I know these sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord when I have mixed motives? Right? I'm not always obeying by faith. Sometimes I'm obeying because of fear of man. Or I want so-and-so to think well of me. Or I want that guy to think I'm godly so that he'll ask me out. Right? Sometimes I obey in faith. Other times I obey for the wrong reason. Sometimes I'm not even sure what my motives are. How can I know that I'm pleasing to God? How can I know that God's accepting my sacrifice? Well, notice the next little phrase. Your obedience doesn't please the Lord on your own merits. It's through Christ. Meaning, Christ makes your efforts to obey pleasing to the Father. The Father views your little sacrifices with mixed motives through the perfect work of His Son. He views them through Christ's perfection. How encouraging is that? He takes your blemished offerings, right? (laughs) Like your, your sick little lambs. You know, He takes those and He perfects them. They're offered through your Savior. That's how you know God is pleased. 
with your attempts to obey. Because he's pleased with his son. And you're in his son. That's encouraging. Encouraging to my heart. Now you might be thinking right now, okay, wow, that sounds amazing, but sounds a little over the top, especially when you look at my life, you know. Am I really part of this temple? My life doesn't feel very glorious, like, like you're talking about right now. My life is hard. I'm headed back in the Thanksgiving break. Got a believing family. Uh, maybe they think you're weird. Maybe they're the podcast guy, you know, thinks you're weird, thinks you need to be reprogrammed. You're about to sit at the table with them and try to eat some stuffing, you know, and you think, I don't, I don't feel very blessed, right? Like, this, this is hard. How can I be sure that I'm really part of this final temple? How do I know that I'm not just sort of misguided and I'm, I'm, I'm missing out? Well, that's our fourth question. Whoa, we'll make it our, our, our fourth question here. We're going to end here. How can we be sure that we are the temple right now? Especially when we don't seem that glorious, when we're made fun of, when we're overlooked, when we're maligned, when we're persecuted, when we're like the, the dregs of society. How do we know that we're on the right track? Well, Peter quotes several Old Testament verses here to bring us assurance that we really are on the right track. He wants to help us see that we're not mistaken for thinking that we really are the temple in these last days. So look with me. I'll read it, and then I'll try to explain it quick. He says, okay, basically, summary, you are the temple, for it stands in Scripture, here's the reason, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, therefore, the quote's over, okay? Therefore, the honor is for you who believe. Okay? The honor is for you who believe. What's he saying? He's essentially saying you can know that you really are part of this temple by just believing in Jesus, that you really are on the right track, because this is what the Old Testament predicted. The prophet Isaiah predicted that one day God would lay down a messianic stone in Jerusalem, that he would lay down a foundation for this new temple, and it predicted that whoever believes in that stone, in that Messiah, won't ultimately be put to shame, he said. What does that mean? It means we might be shamed now by the world, but, but in an ultimate sense, we will not be ashamed. Our lives won't end in shame. One day we will be raised and glorified, and use his word, honored forever, not shamed, because we are part of this eternal temple by faith in Jesus. That's what Peter means when he says, so the honor is for you who believe. The believers, even though they seem weak, we seem weirdos, Actually, the honor is on us. That's what the Old Testament predicted. We are the ones who will be glorified in the end and the inheritors of the new creation. The Old Testament itself predicted our fate, meaning we're in line. We're not off track. We're in line with what the Old Testament said. But what about those who reject Jesus? What about those who make my life hard? How does that fit in, right? How does that, like, attacking me fit into, like, me being blessed as the temple, right? Well, Peter goes on to say that the Old Testament predicts that, too. Even the opposition to the temple right now, that is part of God's plan. Look in verse 7. He says, so the honor is for you who believe, but 
For those who do not believe, another quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying that the Old Testament predicted that the cornerstone of the new temple would be rejected by its builders. He's quoting Psalm 118. And he's saying that part of the plan included the rejection of the stone, of the Messiah. And here, this rejection to the builders is a reference to those who crucified Jesus, and particularly the Jewish leadership of Israel. They're supposed to be building the nation, right? They're they're the leadership of Israel. They rejected the stone. And as a result, Peter says, that stone became a stone that caused him to stumble. And that was a pattern in Isaiah chapter 8. It would cause them to stumble. And Isaiah is very rich on this theme. The stone's going to crush those who don't believe. So it's a cornerstone of a temple. It's beautiful, full of life. And bam, will crush those who do not yield to it. But then, at, at the end of so his, his point is the Old Testament's in line here. The Old Testament's predicting he's going to be rejected. The stone of the temple is going to be rejected, implying that so will we, if we're, we're living stones as well, we're going to be rejected too. That's not like, ah, something's really, really, really wrong. It's like, nope, this is in line with what the Lord said in the Old Testament. But then at the end of verse 8, notice what he says. He kind of brings it all to like an exclamation point. These enemies disobey. Why? Because they were appointed to that end. What? They were appointed, or as the ESV translates it, destined for this. This is the same word Peter used of Christ in verse 6 when he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. I'm appointing a stone. I am, I am, yeah, just, uh, that's, that's the same verb. Laying in Zion a stone. These were appointed to this. Here it says the unbelievers were appointed for this unbelief. Now the point here, you could go kind of sideways on this. The point here is not to go sideways and start doubting the goodness of God. That's not the implication. The implication is that nothing is outside of God's control. Mysteriously, God in his goodness controls the opposition of evil men. And they only end up performing his will in the end. They crucified the Savior, which was part of the plan, right? For the salvation of the world. And for us, the implication is this. Even our enemy, even that uncle or cousin who thinks you're weird at Thanksgiving, they play a part in this unfolding drama. Even as they malign us or make us feel dumb or shame us, this was all predicted to occur. In other words, 
their opposition of you does not mean you're on the wrong track or that you're not part of this temple. In fact, their opposition of you is an assurance that you are part of the temple. And this opposition now will somehow fit into God's good plan. It was appointed. And so we can trust him. So, that's the essence. Peter's trying to teach us about this temple. I know there's a lot of background there that we brought in, you know, at the beginning. I hope that was helpful for you. Um, it helps you bring the pieces together to know kind of how we got from physical temple in the Old Testament to now he's calling us a temple. But some of the final implications, just a, just a final statement. I was thinking about this. Something that is super encouraging here when you think, when you pan out, we're going to revisit this same theme as for our last message in the semester because he's going to come back to some of these same ideas at the uh, end of into this section in, in verse 9 and following. So we'll come back and we'll wrap it up with some really good implications. I know this was a little bit technical. But let me just give you one here at the end. When you think about this, the fact that God swept you up into this temple is that sort of this trumps everything, meaning regardless of your career choice, you know, you kind of, kind of angst over that, like what am I going to do? I'm going to do this, that, the other. Regardless of whether you're married or not, regardless of your, how financially well you do or poor you do in this life, as a Christian, you have the most noble and significant status on earth as part of God's temple. You've been brought into this temple, into this thing that the, the, the prophets look forward to with anticipation, the angels long to look into, Peter said. You've been brought into that. You've been brought into the greatest mission imaginable. And so, in one sense, this pervades it all. It doesn't matter what career you choose because you can build the temple through the career. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. You might want to be married, and that's great. Go pursue that, right? But that doesn't trump this mission. The honor that you have in Christ, the honor that is coming, is unimaginable. And so the person who, against their desires, ends up staying single for the rest of their lives isn't detracted from building the temple. The person who doesn't become a missionary and they have to do X, Y, and Z because they, they can't do the mission thing that they want to do isn't hindered from building the temple. The person whose life just ends up as they hadn't, they, they, they thought, it, you know, I had all these dreams and aspirations when I was in college, now I'm getting out, now I'm realizing, whoa, I'm really limited. I'm only going to be able to do this, and I'm only going to be able to make this much money for the rest of my life. You're part of the temple, right? Like this, this is a destiny that exceeds our, our greatest expectations and our imagination. So the point here is just get this in your heart and be working out the implications of what this means um, in the days to come. It frees us to live for Christ and to be part of his mission. And we're going to see that um, next time when he calls us to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have saved us and, and added us to your great temple. Thank you that it is expanding. Churches are being planted as we speak. People are coming to faith in Christ as we speak. And even tonight, you're building us up as your, as your people. 
so that your glory might shine um, in Boundless, at Timberlake, in Lynchburg, that you might bring your people to yourself, and ultimately, that you might get the glory, and we might be benefited. So we're thankful for that, Lord, and we pray that tonight uh, you would just continue building us up as we spend time with each other, as we eat snacks, and, um, and just spend the evening together, in Jesus' name.